Okay, um, this, this is interesting. I talked to a lawyer who I'm paying for myself, and he's a very good lawyer. He went to Yale, where the Clintons went. And he said that by asking Mr. Eggerberg to lower his price, we essentially revoked our agreement. He can do this. The letter's no good. I need a drink. I will never escape this shit! Stop it! Jesus Christ! You know, the only thing that's wrong with this family is that we don't stand up for ourselves! Now, when you talked to this asshole, were you two alone? Yes. No one around? No, no one around. Oh. Sorry, I didn't go to Yale! Yes! Will someone please tell me what's happening? The conversation never took place. You know I can't do that, Donnie. Well, you're just gonna have to choose between us and Eggerberg! No, between you and the truth. Welcome to The Secret Cinema, the therapeutic podcast for feelings about film. I'm Paolo Carone, my co-host is Carrie Chafee, and we're joined again by Will Ackland to discuss Harold Ramis' 1995 family dramedy, Stuart Saves His Family. During the episode, we end up talking about Kenneth Lonergan, and so I wanted to give a quick public service announcement. Lonergan's film Margaret is an absolute masterpiece, one that we'd easily recommend to any lover of film. However, it's essential that you watch the three-hour director's cut, not the infamous studio-approved edit, which curtails the film's complexity in a contractually obligated effort to appeal to a larger audience. The director's cut is available on DVD, by itself or packaged with the Blu-ray of the studio cut, and it's also for rent on Amazon Video. I can't recommend it enough, just make sure you see the full version. Anyway, back to Stuart Saves His Family... Here's Carrie with the plot summary. Stuart Smalley is good enough, smart enough, and doggone it, people like him. But tell that to the public access network that just canceled his self-help TV show. Or tell it to his entire immediate family, who all need his help after his aunt passes away. Can Stuart rise above these naysayers and put this stinking thinking behind him? Stuart Smalley, the protagonist of Stuart Saves His Family, originated in a sketch on Saturday Night Live. On top of that, the film is directed by comedy legend Harold Ramis, and it's even billed as a comedy, so a typical viewer has every reason to expect a light, funny bit of entertainment. However, the film is surprisingly invested in the emotional dilemmas of its characters, and an unprepared viewer will quickly find themselves blindsided by straight-faced portrayals of trauma and tragedy. In our first clip, Julia, the most prominent of Stuart's various sponsors, tells him about meeting her birth father for the first time, and it should give you a strong idea of the film's tone. Here's that clip. About two years ago, I tracked him down. He lives in St. Louis, wife and family. So I wrote him at work. Dear Mr. Ahern, you don't know me, I'm your daughter. My other dad knew I wasn't his, so he hit me a lot. 
thanked. So I sent off the letter with the picture of myself. And a few weeks later, I get this phone call. It's coming up to Chicago on business. Can we have dinner? Stuart, I was so excited. I'm going to meet my father. Well, I walk into the restaurant and I realize I have no idea what he looks like. And this guy walks in. I have 55. Very distinguished. And he has my eyes. And my nose. This is my dad. We had a lovely dinner. He was very nice, very charming. And as we were leaving, in the parking lot, he made a pass. Jeez. So I am moving past the family stuff and putting the focus where it belongs on me and my inability to trust men. Another surprising element of Stuart Saves' family is how much of it revolves around the mundane details of everyday life. Even its zaniest moments are grounded in some sort of real-world minutiae. In the episode intro, you heard the family arguing over an easement that keeps them from selling a house. In our second clip, Stuart reminisces about his Aunt Paula, which leads to some history on the men of the Smalley family. Here's that clip. I loved Aunt Paula. She was an old maid, so she helped take care of my brother Donnie, my sister Jody, and me. I'd lay across her lap, and she'd tickle my back while we watched TV, and I'd get goosebumps and laugh at the Dick Van Dyke show. Anyway, Aunt Paula lived a long, full life. In fact, she outlived all her brothers by 30 years, basically because she didn't drink. There's lots of ways to die from alcoholism. Liver disease, car accidents, sure. But smally men fall off the roof. In fact, three smally men have met their maker while changing the storm window. Actually, that's not true. Uncle Frank got smashed one afternoon and went up on the roof to trim the big elm. The doctor said he was dead well before he hit the ground. Finally, there are plenty of strong performances in this film, but our favorite was Vincent D'Onofrio as Stuart's stoner brother, Donnie. In our final clip, Donnie confronts his father about their shared alcoholism during an intervention. Here's that clip, and we'll see you on the other side for a discussion of Stuart Saves His Family. You're addicted to 12-step programs. <laughs> God, you'd drink too if you had Liberace for a son. Dad, we're both drunks. And you know what? You're dangerous. The alcohol has made you dangerous to yourself and to all of us. You've scarred all of us. I mean, look at me. I haven't done shit with my life. Uh, that's all my fault. No, it's not all your fault. But stuff happened that made it hard. You remember my first year at Kennedy? New school, new kids. 
You know, I actually got up the courage to have a party. Remember? Down in the basement, we were playing records and stuff. And you got so drunk, you fell down the stairs in front of everybody. It just, it just never happened. returning guest a new returning guest will ackland is back hello Hooray! hey will and uh you are back for a movie that you picked uh stewart saves his family <laughs> i uh, forgot you picked it directed by harold ramus from 1995 and uh uh yeah it's it's will what do you want to say about it i'll just, just get into your thoughts about it i'm sorry <laughs> <laughs> okay i mean so uh, the reason why I picked this one is because this is an SNL sketch. Uh, Stuart Smalley is like this whole daily affirmations. This is a I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and dog out of people like me guy. Uh, a sketch that I think if you were an SNL student, it's, it was one of the things uh, that happened and yeah. it turned into a movie. So I'm like, oh, SNL movie. Whether it's good or bad, you know, it'll be an SNL movie. Maybe so, it'll be funny. So you hadn't seen it before you picked it? That is correct. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't even know it was directed by Harold Ramis. And when I saw that, I was like, oh, this is going to be great. Yeah. Senator Al Franken wrote this based on his, his assuming, scathing book. Yeah. It uh, really seems like it's going to be a different movie than it actually is. Well, unless you think about it and you're like, wait, a senator wrote a movie about self-affirmation and it's directed in like this very warm, loving style. Oh, so it's going to be, well, I mean, not to get to a final judgment, but it's going to be a piece of shit, huh? <laughs> Man, you guys really didn't. No, like- I, I didn't. I didn't dislike it, but it's yeah. It, I guess if we're gonna say the spectrum, it seems like uh, Will is on the 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 fear side. I'm right in the middle, and you're on the love side. <laughs> on the Donnie Darko fear love scale, that's where we're divided. Because I, I mean, I put this on the list. I was I was the first person to watch this. I didn't tell you guys what this is gonna be like really before we watched it. But I think of this like therapy, the movie. And to a degree that I can't even think of another movie that is so thoroughly infected with the tropes of, like, self-help and um, positive thinking and so interested in human psychology in this way that it's, like, kind of, it's kind of bizarre how much this movie fails to be, like, every other movie just by putting so much focus on its characters trying to solve their emotional problems through discussing them which is like fundamentally the opposite of drama (laughs) like if you think about it and so watching this movie like i said this during the movie and i really believe it which is i think this movie for what it's supposed to be, it's it's pretty perfectly executed in a lot of ways. I mean, there's there's I'm sure there's a few things I could pick apart, but overall, I think it's really well directed. I think it's really well acted, and I think the idea that they are trying to present is written clearly and consistently. I just have no idea what I am supposed to be getting out of this. And like I said, what I expect out of a movie is pretty much the polar opposite of this movie. It has no aesthetic 
value and narratively it is interesting and it is interesting in terms of character but it isn't actually interesting or fun <laughs> of an experience to watch it you're just like it's like oh that's interesting that you say to somebody when you're like i don't really know what to say but i don't want to be rude so i'll say that's interesting so i guess that's my broad overall carrie what do you think well, I think you put uh, your finger on why I kind of like this movie is it discusses every character's like emotional problems, and instead of causing drama, they simply address their emotions, and that is something I am totally for in real life. <laughs> I I come from a family where my parents really actively tried to do that. They we would like sit down at family dinner and we would discuss if somebody was disgruntled or upset or if something had happened the week before that we all needed to emotionally wrap our heads around. And it didn't always work, but like to my parents' credit, we did it a lot and it, we did it enough where like, you know, when things would happen, you kind of knew, okay, well, we're gonna, there's probably gonna be a family dinner tonight. Like we're gonna talk about that stuff. And I think the main problem with this movie, not necessarily my problem with this movie, but I think like in a broader sense, the problem with this movie is it's almost too emotionally intelligent. Yeah, or too, um, I, I hate to say it's too emotional, but that also might be, like it's so willing to get into these characters' emotions, it takes them so seriously that it like, it doesn't actually do the work of like conveying to the audience why we should take yeah. right why well, we and, should care so much about and, this SNL drama. And on the flip side of what Will said, I did not go into this movie the first time knowing that this was an SNL movie or who Stuart Smalley was. Um, I didn't watch SNL as a kid. My parents did not allow me to watch SNL as a kid. Yeah, and uh, and so. I didn't have any idea that this was really supposed to be a comedy, other than I knew Al Franken was in it. Well, do one of you guys want to explain who Stuart Smalley is? Because if both of you guys didn't really, weren't familiar with it, I assumed this really speaks to how how dated my reference points are, but I assumed Stuart Smalley was, like, very well known before you guys. So, uh, what, can you guys describe well, it? Well, you guys are both SNL junkies. I definitely am. I mean, so... I watch this movie and I keep seeing different actors. I'm like, oh, that guy was in Wayne's World. Oh, that guy was yeah. in Wayne's World. So, like, I love... So, I'm, I'm raised on SNL and kind of this era. Uh, uh, may, I think maybe Al Franken, maybe a little bit before my time of when I was watching I mean, he, SNL, he was but, on since the, since 75. But sure. the era of Stuart Smalley's late 80s, early 90s. Like, the which is, that golden age. Which is, yeah. honestly, like, when we had the tapes to win... Because my dad loved Mike Myers and I love Mike Myers. So, that's, that's the compilation tape that I had that I... Or, probably dvd eventually right <laughs> but uh so anyway i mean so Stuart smarley smalley is al franken's character it's very emotional very soft-spoken kind of with a lisp almost maybe arguably a little bit hetero questionable well, and even the movie kind yeah. of kind of throws it out there but the point is is al franken uh smart guy obviously senator from minnesota his wife i think had alcoholism issues and was going to alcoholics anonymous and so frank was there to support her and throughout that process, he sort of developed this character, Stuart Smalley, probably picking from P- 
people who have gone through programs because the whole character with Stuart is he's very affirm, you know the whole sketch is called Daily Affirmations of Stuart Smalley and you know I'm good enough I'm smart enough and doggone it people like me and all these little uh, catchphrases that he says which we see a ton in the movie almost every single little catchphrase he has ends up in the movie at some point yeah he says things like I refuse to beat myself up I deserve happiness you can't carpet the whole world something progress like not perfection yeah, yeah it's like every other line of dialogue he's got all the cliches yeah. but I mean and, and so the comedy out of this is, is supposed to be basically uh, you know he is so tied up in this process of improving and uh you know affirming his his himself and a forgiving himself i mean he's an overeaters anonymous alcoholics anonymous all these different debtors anonymous yeah he's just in all these different 12-step programs and that's probably one of the in my opinion one of the few consistently funny things in this movie is the number of times that he's in his apartment, just like, oh, feeling sorry about it. And he's got, like, six different people who are his sponsors. Oh, the, the sponsor for this group and the sponsor for this group. All knocking on the door and saying, oh, blah, 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 blah. You're so great. And, you know, you're just forgive, you know, forgive yourself and all these things. He's so, even got a sponsor from his group, Adult Children of Alcoholics. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> Which, Adult Children is an oxymoron, right? This would be a good movie to watch, like, right before Fight Club. <laughs> it's just like Fight Club is the the, 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 the horrific endpoint of this world. Yeah, I, I guess the other thing is, like I said, because I didn't know this was an SNL movie, I didn't approach this as being a comedy. And so, I and, I, and Will and I were talking about this right before we started recording, but there were a ton of movies in the 90s that were like family dramas that were also a little bit comedies like i i always think of um the parent trap obviously well i was actually (laughs) thinking of like home for the holidays with holly hunter um or god there's another one i was thinking of too. directed by jodie foster director of the (laughs) beaver but you know i there were a lot of those movies and my my parents were are very into like coming of age self-realization type movies and so I, I'm surprised we never watched this movie because I feel like they would totally have gotten behind to like the message of Stuart Smalley saying like you have to believe in yourself like you can't beat yourself up that kind of thing. But that's not why this movie got made. This movie got made because Stuart Smalley was a popular character on SNL and they thought that would translate into a comedic audience in the box office and that did not yeah. happen. And, and I guess oh, it's, it's, well, I would say especially. So you have to consider the time. So this is the early to mid '90s, and so Wayne's World had just come out in the in '92-ish. Yeah. And so you know that, and that was a smash hit. They immediately made a sequel, which was yeah. Don't have to talk yeah. about that. But uh, <laughs> starring all these different, uh, so they had SNL characters, obviously from from Wayne's World, but then all these different other SNL actors. And so you know this is the '90s, and you know we see today if there's one trend then people all follow that trend yeah. that's was certainly going on in the 90s so they made a bunch of other so coneheads was an snl sketch and that became a, a movie that did all right and then you know there was stewart saved his family and, and then adam Ad- sandler blew up but adam sandler actually had left snl those weren't snl movies those ah. were different things this this was like i mean this says at the beginning of the title this is a lord michaels production yeah so other movies that sort of followed in this vein are like it's Pat with Julie Sweeney, which <laughs> probably m- might have done worse than... than oh, yes, it, it did. did. Yeah, it like, did do worse. But yeah. then there's also, like, Night of the Roxbury and The Ladies' oh Man. God, totally and, ba- and basically, like, the, the consistent string of little failures here, basically, they, they snuffed <laughs> Superstar. out... Superstar. Superstar, yeah. yeah. They, they basically snuffed out the SNL movie until... 
like MacGruber. Uh, and MacGruber didn't even do well, but MacGruber's just really funny. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, like, I, I love MacGruber. Yeah. yeah. It didn't do well, and I can totally understand why. But if we were to watch MacGruber, we could be sitting here like, man, what yeah. a silly movie. Whereas if we're watching Stuart Stevens' family, <laughs> KFB, like, like there's so many quotable things. What's a quote from this movie outside of just, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, dog out of people like me. But that, that's just yeah. the context. Not, not, not to say that every SNL movie has to be the same, and that's certainly what makes this movie quite a bit different. Like but this, this is like, but having this described as an SNL movie is like telling someone that they're going to watch a horror movie and then having them watch Twilight. Where it's like, the elements are there, but it is not the right genre. Like, it is just so flat what, out not a comedy. So what don't you like about this movie? Well, like I said, Because it's, for me, like, this movie is functional as a movie on so... It gets so many things correct. Yeah. Like, there, there are things it does well, and there are things that it does well enough. But for me, there's nothing it does so poorly that I don't like the movie. Um, notice how we didn't laugh and how a lot of time <laughs> while we were watching this movie we were like, how much longer this movie got? Yeah. Sure. And we were talking during it and we we're like, yeah, I'm just gonna go up. Yeah, and, okay. Yeah. It drags a little, my, yeah. My problem is just that, like I said before, it's fundamentally the opposite of what I want out of going to the movies. Sure. And it is, I really, it's like, the, the, my problem with this movie is is that I am completely torn between the fact that I don't enjoy watching it and the fact that I completely respect it. And it's like, <laughs> it's exactly right in the middle. Like when we did Images, Images was really dull, but I respected it so much that like the dullness was mostly forgivable. And this, it's one of those things where I like, I felt uh, probably about the, when we checked, we paused the movie until we were halfway through, I was like, do I know this movie well enough that we could just stop <laughs> just talking about it right now? Because it's, the, there's nothing surprising about the way it plays out. Sure. Because and the, the thing I thought about, because um, we just, uh, Carrie and I just rewatched Analyze This, and Analyze This is directed by Harold Ramis. I had also. never seen it before. But Harold, uh, it, the key thing that I, that I connected is that Analyze This is directed, is written by Kenneth Lonergan. Uh, Kenneth Lonergan, uh, who just won, won an Oscar, just won an Oscar for Manchester by the Sea. Uh, he also wrote uh, "You Can a, Count on Me" and uh, "Secret Cinema Favorite Margaret." Uh, but the thing with Kenneth Lonergan is Kenneth Lonergan writes very, very down to earth, like almost borderline banality driven theater. Like where, the Adventures of Rocky and Bullwinkle. Oh, okay. And, <laughs> <laughs> oh, listen, slam. screenwriters got to get some money. Uh, the guy who wrote everybody's got to work. The guy who wrote Doubt also wrote Congo. If you, okay. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> what? Yeah, no uh, way. Yeah, look into that. Whoa. But um, Kenneth Lonergan, and also Kenneth Lonergan wrote an episode of Doug. If we're gonna really push this <laughs> into the weird dimensions, but Kenneth Lonergan mostly is obsessed with these like very hyper-real portraits of, like, everyday American life. Mm. Like, very normal. And part of the, the, the reason Manchester by the Sea got criticized a lot was because the whole cast was white, but if you've been to the kind of community that is being portrayed in Manchester by the Sea, that community is all white, and that's how all white Catholic communities are. It's I, very dead on. I also thought it was because there's a... No spoilers here, but there's a... It's like an emotionally 
disastrous. Like it's tough to watch that movie and yeah. not be like, oh my god. Yeah. <laughs> and, and also, I thought the whole controversy, the whole thing was Casey Affleck. But we're getting off the yeah, point. Yeah, we're getting off the point. Yeah, which is yeah. I was like, but, where are you going? I'm just going with this because Stuart saves his family is similar to me in terms of Harold Ramis having this obsession, uh, not obsession because that makes it only a bad thing, but he just has this autorial focus on these like weirdly detailed portraits of everyday life like groundhog day has the gimmick of the looping day but it ends up nestling into this groove of bill murray's psychology of like what would a real person feel going through this and what would that pressure of time weigh on this real psychology he's really into these real psychological portraits in comedy i was gonna say that's maybe that's harold rams's thing oh yeah was he was really into getting inside of a character's mind. And that's not always funny. No. And I would say he nails it in Groundhog Day. And Stuart saves his family. He doesn't nail it, but he like gets the point across. It's, and, it's, yeah, he's And then in Analyze This, I mean, honestly, we watched it and I can't remember anything from it's it. It's kind of dumbed down a little bit more, but I feel like it, came, it comes from that same like core. Like, the gimmick of Analyze This yeah. is very much rooted well, yeah, in that. Yeah, the whole point is he's going to therapy. And then I feel like all the movies of Harold Ramis's that aren't successful are the ones that are, like, way crazier. Or, like... Like Bedazzle. Bedazzle, which is terrible. And um, I think Ice Harvest is really good. I'd say Ice Harvest grounds itself in... Uh, like, psychological detail. But that one is also flat out not really... I mean, it's funnier than Stuart Saves' family. What's Ice Harvest? That's the one with John Cusack I was going to say, is that John Platt. Cusack? It's yeah. like the noir that yeah, he did. Yeah. But actually, okay, let's talk about the actual plot of Stuart Saves' family, because we kind of... Well, I, I got it written down right All right, here. Carrie. Uh, so, number one, Stuart loses his show. Number two, Stuart loses his cool with the executive of the show. Roz Weinstock? Was that it? Yeah, something like Sounds that. Sounds right. She's not like a Muppet character. Yep, Weinstock. Number three, Stuart goes home for a funeral. Aunt Paula. Number four, Stuart goes back to Chicago and gets back on track. That's when he starts running. And yep. he's wearing shorts. Which, what season was it? When is it warm enough in Chicago to wear shorts? It does end in Christmas, so... It must okay. have been, like, May. Yeah. Uh, number five. Stuart goes back home to resolve the easement. Oh, yeah. God. Keep going with the plot, but okay. I'm going to talk about the easement. Number yeah. six. Stu- Stuart uh, goes back to Chicago and steals his demo tape. Number seven. Stuart gets his own show. Number eight. Stuart gets subpoenaed. Number nine. Stuart visits Donnie in the hospital. Number 10, Intervention. Man, it's crazy because you. I feel like you still skipped over, like, 15 different, like, There are a lot of little details. Yeah, yeah, sure. Like but those were the big ones. Yeah, like, because, like, none of that, like, even when describing the plot, none of that gets into the fact that, like, the dad is an alcoholic. And right. so that's spurring on some of the stuff. But at the same time, it's like, the plot, that's probably, like I said, I respect I think this. it's because the movie, I wrote the plot based on Stuart, and Stuart is not what the movie's really about. Yeah, Stuart kind Stuart's of brings a point, he brings a point of view to his family. Like, he is a vehicle for the self-help philosophy being introduced into his dysfunctional family. 
Like, he was made dysfunctional by his family. He left, went to Chicago, developed, got into the self-help world, and is, like, bringing that back. Like, presumably he's done this before, but this is, like, the point of the movie is that now that he has been more or less let go of his TV show, show, he has more time and energy to get, like, really into this stuff with them. But that gets into why I don't understand how this movie works, because it starts off with Stewart's got his show doing his thing. If you ever watched SNL, he's basically finishing up one of his sketches, and he re he admits on camera, oh, yeah, by the way, like, they're bump they're bumping my show off, and then he spouts his mouth off because he gets angry, as, and then he realizes, and he tries to make... And that's okay. And he tries to make an amends, <laughs> yeah. and it blows up in his face. But so, like, there's this whole, like, it starts... There's, like, two stories going on with the... Stuart loses show, gets confident enough to uh, shop a show around, and then gets a, a better show that's in a better environment for him. And the other story is all the stuff that's going on with his family, where the aunt dies, he has to go back home, he sort of reopens some of these old wounds... And the fallout of his aunt dying, uh, seeing his family, and then there's this whole um, probate issue, executing the will yeah. with the aunt's old house, so they have to clear an easement. Which that is, that is so stupid. That well, no, but the, the easement is exactly what I'm talking about with the, the banalities thing, is that this has to be the only movie ever that has that devotes so much time and plot to resolving an easement issue. And specifically that a family member offered too much money for an easement, and uh, so they're trying to pay less, and so the other guy, the guy who they're trying to pay off, is frustrated, and so he tries to charge them more. And this is so banal. Like, this is not something anybody would ever think to put in a movie, and it's like the type of detail that this movie is yeah. made up. I can understand why this movie bombed at the time it came out, because, like, if you went to a... a paid to go to a movie theater and then you're watching like you're you know the whole point of going to the movies is to escape reality and and forget your worries or whatever the bullshit is and instead you've got instead it's like future senator al franken explaining to you and trust alcoholism. me as, as someone who was in law school the fucking worst part of law school property law and specifically <laughs> sorting out an easement from property <laughs> and sorting this out when, there's so much legalese and and, and like Vincent and Afrio and and Al Franken both sort of like go back and forth explaining. Oh, I talked to an attorney about this, and he's very good, and I'm paying for him. All these little things, which like are, are like kind of funny, but like it is really like dry material. And you're right, and some, yeah. and some of this like it was emotionally hard hitting, like with alcoholism or some of these you know substances. Like there are, is it, we've seen tons of movies where people have been affected by these sorts of things and trying to show the drama that that doesn't even show the drama that like you said. Yeah. I think a while ago, like. It's just people just expressing their truths and then dealing with that. It's, it's not even so much yeah, like what happened. No it's just drama. About it. yeah. yeah, that's what I was saying about it being almost too emotionally intelligent. Yeah, like, it's, it's so self-aware that it's like, oh, there's no drama because everybody's already talking about this, how they feel. This is what happens when you have a really smart person who writes a screenplay that probably didn't really get checked. He dropped yeah. a Yale and Clinton references just like a like nothing. Yeah, like, <laughs> you know. Oh, there's I found this story. I can't remember if I found it on. Wikipedia or like in an article I was reading but when I was doing research on Al Franken it said that in the 90s there was a, like a reporter who was trying to, to interview Bill Clinton and Bill Clinton saw Al Franken enter the room from like across the room he's like hold on I'm gonna have to stop you my hero just arrived and he like walked over to Al Franken <laughs> that's a story I don't know if it's true or not but 
Like yeah, Al, Frank, Al Franken is like very well respected, and if he yeah. is as emotionally intelligent as Stewart, or even like a tenth, people probably flock to him because you know that it's it's really validating to be around someone who absolutely always knows how they feel about certain things, or who can explain why they felt a certain way and apologize or recognize it. Well, and also continuing off uh, Will's point about no one really checking the screenplay, uh, this, at this at the point this movie came out, Al Franken is an almost 20-year veteran of yeah. SNL. And so of all the people who are going to get Project Screenlit, like, he is one of those people that they are going to just inherently trust. What was that story you were telling me about him and Lorne Michaels? Oh, well, I'm just... A great book. If you're into Saturday Night Live, the best book that you could possibly read about it is Live from New York, which is the oral history of SNL. And they interview just about everybody. And there's a bunch of stories from the first season where they're talking about all the drugs that everyone did. Or, like, they talk about uh, Lorne Michaels would be in a meeting and he would light a joint during the meeting and they would pass it around as they, like, planned out the first episode of SNL. But one of the stories is Al Franken talking about how they all got their own individual bags of cocaine. And just him, like, just reading, like, a future, future Senator Al Franken <laughs> described his, like, personal cocaine bag from SNL is, uh, it's great. Just what, a, like, what a breadth of experience this man has. Yeah. Thinking about Al Franken makes me realize that who knows what I'm going to do in 30 years. Yeah. Because <laughs> he, I mean, how could he have guessed, like, in 1975, he would start writing for the most successful sketch comedy show ever in existence, and then, 30 years later, he's a senator. <laughs> yeah. Actually, Ford, almost 40 well, years so later. He, his story with this at, at, at the time, too, is so he, they optioned, obviously, to make this movie, and so he, he writes the movie, and they do the whole thing, and it bombs, and he comes back on SNL after the movie comes out, and he does this, the character basically reacting to the poor press, which we actually watched before we watched the movie, and honestly, it's probably the funniest uh, yeah. Stuart Smalley yeah. sketch of them all, because it's basically... An unhinged Stuart Smalley just being like, I don't care about any of this affirmation shit. You guys are terrible people. You guys went and watched a Polly Shore movie because you probably like to beat your children. Like, just completely unhinged. He's just shoveling food into his mouth. He yeah. doesn't even do the I'm good enough, I'm smart enough thing. And and then what happened after, it was, uh, short after, shortly after, he doesn't get Weekend Update because he'd been writing on the show forever. He thought, okay, if Dennis Miller is the Weekend Update host, surely I can be next because Dennis Miller is this conservative hack. I can go be the liberal hack. Well, he ended up giving it to Norm Macdonald, and he's like, fuck this whole shit, I'm out of here. And then he goes on to, I think he'd already written, he'd already written a Stuart Smalley-ish book, and then another book. Then he goes on to write, write like, Lies and the Lying Liars, to tell yep. them, and other sort of very anti-Republican um, books. And he then had he goes a radio show. Air America, yeah. and then that sort of gives him his platform up into uh, politics. Yeah, he started planning to run for senator, like, three or four years ahead of time, because he, mo he moved his whole family back to Minnesota. Mm -hmm. Oh, smart move. It, it clearly paid off. Yeah. Al Franken is a fascinating person. Yeah. I mean, um, by the way, his middle name is Stewart. Oh, there you go. Yeah. So I think, I mean, that's probably yeah, where he got Yeah, this movie is clearly pretty personal in a lot of ways. If not if not autobiographical, definitely, like... Well, and the other thing I, I totally respect is he... All of this came out of his love for his wife and his want to support her in her Al-Anon meetings. Right. And I think that's the the, tr the problem, the, the, like the good and the bad with this. The good, it's like a double-edged sword. The, the bad of this is that 
I, for me anyway, I come at this thinking it's SNL, and although I kind of had an idea what the sketch was, I mean, it's not like I was watching the sketch when I was however old, how old I was, very, very young, um, if even born, um, but like, I'm expecting this movie's going to be like a comedy, but it ends up being just like this, what did I write about this? I said, I, I don't know if it's like, it's, so it's like a character with emotional insecurities, and he's got like a defined emotional process in how he processes his emotions. And it's born into like this actual experience. Like there's a lot of truth in this, but like, is that funny? <laughs> yeah. Is it, is, it, is it parodying? It's, I don't even think it is. It's just like, it's healthy to have feelings. I assume that the idea of the sketch was that it was kind of parodying it, but the movie does not present the material in a way that invites no, laughter. No, it almost validates it. Yeah. It like, and because I think too, when you watch the sketch, the audience laughs because at the time I, I I know that self-help stuff in the 90s would have been way more familiar and it would have been like they're laughing out of recognition. But when you step back from it, it doesn't really like it. Stewart is such a likable, sympathetic character that it, you don't want to laugh at him. And he's not telling jokes or quipping. So there isn't really anything to laugh at beyond recognition or just you don't understand it and you mock it yeah. <laughs> like and so and yeah that that's not really with, good foundation for comedy with his lisp and just sort of his you know positive reinforcement it's almost like a sexually ambiguous richard simmons sort of like positivity <laughs> yeah. thing you know uh, one of the things i was thinking though like during this movie especially you just like see the, these close-ups of al franken's face as he's Stewart. like <laughs> if you put like makeup on his face but like kept the whole accent like you think it's the Joker too. Yeah, you ever think about that. It's kind of weird. I don't know. Especially, I, I I loved when they do like the when he would have his meltdowns throughout the movie and they do the close ups of him making like a Tim Heidecker face, right? <laughs> like stuff like that. Yeah, and then he'd make his amends. Ugh. Yeah. Well, so Stuart, so Stuart Smalley first aired in ninety one. Ninety one. Okay. okay, so not so no he was so, and I'm pretty sure like almost immediately after he aired is when Franken got the book deal, because I think the book came out in either 92 or 93. Wow, yeah. And then the movie is loosely based on the book, and the movie came out in 95. So it was, like, pretty fast that it all happened. And and the movie really only got made because of Harold Ramis. Al Franken said, come out and said, like, look, I wasn't looking to make this into a movie. I never thought that this would be a movie. But Harold Ramis approached me, and he really saw it through, and that's the only reason it became a movie. And so it's it's weird that he was like so pat not weird, but I wonder why he was so interested in telling this story. Well, I made that argument earlier, so yeah. reverse the episode, listener, and <laughs> put it together. Let's yeah. talk about the, some specifics about the movie some more, because there's definitely some scenes that we could get into detail with. I, the one scene I want to talk about, it's probably like the, the scene that sticks out the most from this movie, is, okay, Stuart, as we mentioned, he has numerous sponsors, and the, the most prominent one is his Al-Anon sponsor named Julia, and Julia is played by Laura San uh, Giacomo, I'm probably mispronouncing it that. It is San Giacomo. Giacomo. Uh, we just, uh, Carrie and I just rewatched Sex, Lies, and Videotape, and she's one of, she's the, so good one of the leads in that. And it was funny, because I was thinking again, I was like, wow, she likes movies where she has some sort of therapy, or like, yeah. it's best to talk about her emotions, because that's all Sex, Lies, and Videotape is. But uh, she 
is is super supportive. She's always there for Stuart. Stuart works at a restaurant, and she comes and eats at the restaurant so she can give him like help him uh, help talk out his problems while he's at work. Uh, she's super supportive. Uh, so like about it's not halfway, but a little before the halfway point of the movie, Stuart's trying to make her. Uh, engage with like her past and her issues with her family and she gives she tells him this monologue uh yeah that's definitely a point where you're like this isn't a comedy yeah this monologue is a clear point where when it's over you have to know that's not a comedy yeah. if you are somehow confused it is like <laughs> okay so her she she starts by saying that her father basically got her mother pregnant and then abandoned like, so she was raised by a man that, who wasn't her father, and to pretty much quote verbatim, she says, because he knew I wasn't his, he beat me. Like, she says yeah. that. And, the, like, everything I'm saying, there's no humor spin on it. It is said very straightforward. So she, years later, when she's an adult, she tracks down her real father, and they arranged to meet at a restaurant and she says that she got to the restaurant and she realized she didn't know what he looked like. And then she sees him from across the room and she just recognizes her own eyes. Like she can see that she has his eyes and sees him and talks to him and they have this lovely dinner and they connect. And on the way out after, uh, on the way out to her car, her father makes a pass at her. Like, that's exactly the way she phrases it. And so she says, so after that happened, I'm just moving on. I'm not dealing with the family stuff. I'm dealing about me. It's it's just about making sure I'm happy. And it's that. There's no comedic edge to this. It's just like, uh, Stuart is talking to her about his family stress, and she's like, yes, I have deep I have family stress. Family stress when, too. They, when they hug at the end, they may as well just play la 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 and then just like end <laughs> of the movie. Like, okay, okay. Yeah. And do you think that was only to flesh her out a little bit? Because otherwise she's pretty useless yeah, as a character. She's like a foil. She exists as a foil for Stuart. Because like, I, I don't know if you noticed, but when he doesn't talk to her, when she's not around to talk to him, there's narration to like mm. fill in the plot. Every step of the way... Because this is like therapy, the movie, we are privy to every emotional moment that Stuart experiences. So every realization he has, we are privy to it. And every piece of background that we need to know, we aren't just like, it's not just hinted at, we are fully explained it. We are, every piece of information that you need to know is given to you. There is no subtext that you are intended to discover. I mean, there is subtext here, but it's, it's all incidental there is no like everything about the movie is intended to be immediately visible and accessible which i think is kind of part of the frustrating thing so they go through this whole he has the show he loses the show he tries to get his show back by talking to this Roz, yeah. Roz, and then that doesn't work out and then it does this like oh you know let me tell you about my family and then, you know, every, you know, we're all, al everyone's an alcoholic and all, all the dads are alcoholics and they all die by falling off of ladders. The, the, whole, the, whole, the whole scene of like, you know, all of these people falling off of ladders, maybe it's just a pratfall, but it's kind of funny. I don't understand why you couldn't frame this movie to start with being like, I have some emotional issues. My family has this and you can show all of these little back, backstory things and then you can flash forward to, and now I have the show and then I lost the show. And as I'm losing the show, that, like you could tell yeah. the story in a different way and which makes me just wonder like. 
couldn't. It could have been the script. It could have been Ramis just wanted to show it how he did. It could have been a combination of the two. It, it could strange. also be the okay. So the maybe the reason that they started the movie the way they did is Paolo and I we were watching some of the Stuart Smalley uh, skits from old SNL episodes because, like I said, I was totally unfamiliar. We watched one that is literally the opening of the movie. Yeah, it is like a verbatim the opening of the movie where he even says, like, oh, my show got moved, I have some bad news for you. It must have been the one right before the movie premiered. Like, it yeah, must have played. It is, it is the beginning of the movie. And so I'm wondering if maybe the reason that's how they opened the movie is they were like, well, we need to hook our audience and remind them of why they came to the movie. They came because they like Stuart Smalley. Well, and, and also, I mean, it's the same principle with Wayne's World, because Wayne's World, if you remember, is also about people who have a public access television show. That's true. And... The, they have to find a way to be like, how do we get them out of the TV show? Because they can't just show... The, it's not like UHF where they can make the whole movie about making the TV show. They have to like find a way to get into like the outside world. Yes, but they also show how that thing sucks as it cuts. Yeah. And then he goes through his house with one of my favorite lines ever, I have a vast collection of name tags and hairnets. Like... Don't get me started oh, on Winter Man. No, Winter World's <laughs> really good. We that just one, rewatched them very well. <laughs> we just uh, rewatched um, Black Sheep yesterday, and Black Sheep is from the director of uh, of Wayne's World. And Penelope Spheris is a very, very good director. She might get stuck with largely shitty Hollywood movies. I saw she direct, directed the Little Rascals movie from that the movie 90s is too. great. I haven't seen it since oh, I was a kid. So she I, directed yeah, it. That movie's awesome. She's she is a very capable director, and I'm not saying that Harold Ramis isn't but Penelope Spheris because of her background has a little bit more like a, a punk attitude she brings to this and Harold Ramis does not Harold Ramis is very he's the straight white man he's very you he, even in Ghostbusters he's the straight man in Ghostbusters yeah like but so maybe that goes more to he just likes to tell stories about emotional truth and that's yeah. sort of what the Franken character is because that's the thing like again in context like this is an SNL movie because it's an SNL character that's got SNL actors and a whole bit about it um or related things, and to Lord Michael production, whereas things that were coming out at the same time, Adam Sandler had a couple of movies, Happy Gilmore and Billy Madison, yeah. and there was the Tommy Boy and Black Sheep movies with Farley and Spade. So there were SNL people that weren't doing SNL movies, they were just getting on with their life. Yeah. You know? I, I guess, I just don't, was it because they weren't doing an SNL thing? Is it because they had a little bit more money or creativity? Or were people just really locked into, this is such a great character on the TV show, obviously we can make this stretch it out to a 90-minute movie. I think, yeah, I think it's just, it's the, I mean, it's the same principle as, like, with National Lampoon, where the very first two or three things were such a success that they just ran it into the ground until it was killed, until it well, was just we, too dead to revive. I even sent you guys that article that's that talked about how Wayne's World is actually the exception to the rule when it comes to SNL movies. Yeah. It what it made like 150 million or something. Enough to have a sequel and enough that I have burned out two VHS tapes of it and now own the movie on DVD. And I'm pretty sure Siskel even had it in his top 10 list that year. I like mean, it's, it's a, very it's really a great it's movie. well regarded for a reason. Yeah. It's a great movie, but because it did so well, you know, they tried to make SNL movies a thing and like I said it was more the exception to the rule than, like, the beginning of a trend. Sure. And so, I think, I think also timing. Like, what year was Wayne, Wayne's World? 92. 92, and this was 95, so maybe it was just, like, the heyday of, like, well, let's try to make as many of these skits work as possible. Yeah. 
Because they don't really do that anymore with SNL. Like, when was the last time they made an SNL movie? I think it was with Gruber. Gruber. Yeah. And that was, what, like six, seven years ago? Were there any yeah. Andy Samberg ones? Hot Rod was before he got on SNL, oh, I believe. God. And then the Popstar movie is definitely, like, if you ever seen Popstar, which came out. Oh, like, yeah. Uh, like, it's a Lonely Island movie. It's fucking hilarious, but it's not an SNL character. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The, Andy Samberg, uh, he has his own, like, Lonely Island group, so he didn't have to do anything that's... Yeah. Anything through yeah. SNL. But yeah, I think McGruber, and then before that was... But like, this would be, uh, this would be like giving Stefan, like Bill Hader's Stefan character a movie. Like, that's the type God, of... God, what would that movie be? Well, it would probably be great, right? <laughs> yeah. Written by John Mulaney, presumably. Do you think they'd yeah. actually go to those clubs? I mean, you'd have to, right? <laughs> but I, see, even then, I wonder, like, could you make it... Like, if, if it was... And who would be Stefan's friend? But wouldn't Stefan Steph- save his Seth family? Myers. Wouldn't Stefan save his family be such a better movie? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't mean that Stefan wouldn't save his family. I suppose not. It's more like Stefan saves Pizza Rat. <laughs> Well, it's 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 because what is funny about Stefan, while it is an, it, to some extent the sketch is like mocking Stefan a little bit. Stefan is part of a larger community that is inherently silly, and he's the friendly gateway point to it. Whereas Stuart is not a gateway to a weirder world. He's a gateway to troubled people gonna, who are sincerely trying I, to deal with their emotions. I'm going to say this. I think that the reason the Stuart Smalley movie doesn't work for most people is because it's about his family. Like, okay, let me pitch this to you guys. Let me let me throw a little idea your way. Let me get my Hollywood hat on, yes. <laughs> Imagine that instead of him saving his family, he goes to a public access television convention and he meets all these other people who have TV shows and he ends up having like a rival who, instead of someone who is daily affirming their um, audience, they're tearing them apart. They're like, you know, just like uh, the Rush Limbaugh of, public access or this, something this like that. This kind of sounds like Zoolander a little bit in that you have one person in a world right. and another person in the world there's kind of a rivalry. Exactly. There. It's a it's a uh, formula that's worked for years. I agree because I think that the reason why Stuart kind of works as a sketch is not so much Stuart. Stuart is just the vehicle of look at these crazy silly things they have on public access. Look, so, sometimes they'll just let a guy who talks to himself in a mirror as as a thing. Yeah. That, that's why it works. It's like like you said, like with UHF, yeah. like Wayne's World, like the characters are pretty great and they just do some silly things because they're kind of connected to like this music world. That's kind of the, the benefit they have. But they're just ultimately a public access TV show. And part of it is just like, well, what if they became all corporate? That's what yeah. the movie's about. Right. So, I mean, m- maybe if they did, like, what if instead of Stuart talking to himself, they gave him, like, a Maury show? Like, there are lots of different directions <laughs> yeah. that I think Yeah, or if they gave him it. an enemy. Like, I think the problem is you never see... St- Stuart gets flustered in the movie, but his fluster uh, behavior is all about himself. He's mad at himself because he blew up at the executive. He's mad at himself because he interfered with his family and now his family's uh, easement is screwed up. You know, he, he's like continually mad at himself instead of mad at someone else. And as you mentioned, the sketch we watched that was the funniest was the one after the movie came out where he is upset 
and he's like, well, fuck everybody. You didn't see my movie. You're all <laughs> dumb idiots. And that is funny because it's against character. Yeah. Now, if they had set up a premise where there would have been a moment where Stuart had to blow up or go out of character and be an angry asshole, that would have been funny. Or even if we spent a little bit more time early on or during the flashback sequence, sequences with like the worst case scenario version of him. And instead we get like these tiny snippets like we get the photograph of him really over with the bike or we get these like very tragic flashbacks yeah. to him being a, an overweight really child dark. and everybody like mocking him for his weight and for his hopes and dreams and then things don't work out and everyone makes fun of him more and it's just so it's so sad every chance they they have to like set up like a comedic uh parallel or extreme or something like that they just go for authentic human pain i so i guess really then i would have to if we're gonna say that there's a true a place to lay blame on this movie i guess it would have to be with al franken because i i say structurally the movie makes total sense i think he clearly i mean he clearly knows he's clearly a good writer in terms of he understands writing and he understands yeah there's what, no like logical yeah, flaws he understands or telling a story i just don't think he had enough experience writing movies or writing this type of thing to really consider the audience expectation side of it. Like you sure. said, I think maybe it was more of a book adaptation than it was a let's flesh out a script and how can we, what can we do with Stuart that would be fresh and new and do something with him. And although this says an emotional truth that, like you said, I think like there is merit to this movie. Yeah. It had like therapy. The movie is probably the best way to describe it. Mm -hmm. Like you said, but I, like, I really like that, but yeah, I, I don't know. The, the the thing that kills me, though, is, like, it's not like there weren't funny scenes in this. Like I said, no, I really we did. We laughed. We laughed a couple times, yeah. Uh, but, like, some of the little little things I like, I like early on uh, when he makes a, a reference, like, I'm wearing a new sweater. <laughs> yeah. It was knitted by a, a sex addict <laughs> since she gave her something to do with her hands. That's, like, a perfect Yeah, that's a great like, joke. Yeah. And I, I laughed at the moment when, uh, it's during one of the flashbacks, it's the flashback where the dad goes and gets the, the football for Stuart and his brother, and he shows up. He, the dad comes home and Stuart and his brother and his sister run up to the dad and Stuart and the brother are like dad our neighbor took our football and Jody the sister goes hi dad <laughs> and that just doesn't care at all that was a perfect joke it landed so well Is, was he like a Maytag man was he a post office I wasn't worker? even I I was I was spending a lot of internet research during this movie trying to figure that <laughs> out Another little reference I liked, they I, they made some some reference about, like, Illinois Nazis, Skokie Nazis, which made me think Oh, of, yeah, it was the, a Holocaust survivor in Skokie said she prefers our skinhead hour to your show, is something Roz says to Stuart. It just reminded me of, I hate Illinois Nazis from Blues Brothers, <laughs> uh, which I have to say, although I love Wayne's World, Blues Brothers... Probably the greatest SNL movie of all time. Yeah, I've got to I watch haven't it. seen it. I've only seen the, like the first 25 oh minutes. Yeah, you live it. in Chicago, you people. Yeah. We actually watched Dr. Detroit, so... I was going to say, we're a Ferris Bueller household. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. John Hughes all the way. Okay, fine. <laughs> Guys, there's a thing called music. You should hear it. All right. It makes Blues Brothers mad. <laughs> all right. Anyway, yeah. last little thing, uh, like funny scene I like. I also like when he's 
the waiter. That's like the one thing that kind of doesn't align with the whole Stuart character is he is this public access host. He's got all these family issues, but like he's got a side gig because they kind of like make a couple references that Stuart is poor. He doesn't have any money really. Yeah. So he's a waiter on the side. And so there's like a visual gag that starts right after he gets fired from his TV show where he's sitting talking with Julie, whatever. Julia, yeah. Sure. And and then it, we realize he's not sitting down to dinner with her. He's actually a waiter who's just like <laughs> yeah. not working right now. Yeah. There's another table calls Garcon, like, <laughs> take my order. Yeah, and the guy who uh, calls him over is Beef from... Phantom of the Paradise. Garrett Graham. A really weird cameo. Like, a, he... I mean, he's not famous to anyone but, like, super nerds, but it's still weird to see yeah. somebody who has, like, had big roles in movies show up for, like, less than a minute of screen time. Yeah. Okay, so speaking of people starting with less than a minute of screen time, can we now talk about how, for all the things that I've been saying about this movie, how wonderful the acting and the characters and the actors are in this movie. Yeah, yes. we should talk, let's talk about that. Wait, yeah. you know who we haven't mentioned at all? Vinny D. Vinny. Vinny D. Well, yeah. There you go. Talking about great performances. Vincent D'Onofrio as the stoner brother to Stuart uh, is so good. I great love hair, Vincent Great mustache. Great the, he is looking great in this uh, movie. Super tall, super skinny. His, his, his skin, hair. His skin is not hanging off his face like Edgar from Manifold. <laughs> <laughs> great. Yeah, and he plays the brother really like well and believable. Yeah, and just which I, is like, weird because he and Al Franken don't look anything alike. No, but they have like a be really believable chemistry yeah. as brothers, like yeah. as, especially as like brothers who are clearly very different in a lot of ways, yeah. but like still believably have just like that inherent connection. Well, and I thought the sister was great. She was really believable. I know so many. That's like such oh, a Midwestern yeah. type. I like. I, I don't know how to be more specific. But, like, she, yeah, there's a bunch of stuff like yeah, this, this that's, like, dead on for oh, certain I types. wish I'd written down the actress's name, but the sister in the movie's name is Jody. I think Leslie Boone? Yeah, that sounds right. Yeah. She was actually apparently in Fences. Oh, cool. Good for her. Yeah, that was her most recent credit. Oh. It is Leslie Boone. All right. Uh, I, there were so many, like, so I uh, grew up in Minnesota before I moved out to Michigan. Oh, really? Yeah, from 90... Two to ninety six. Oh, I live in Minnesota, oh. so like right rel during this relevant period, yeah. and this is very like nineties and very Minnesota with the <laughs> Jello, the casseroles, all of the stuff about food, Sara Lee, uh, so many floral patterns, <laughs> so, so many like pastoral colors, but like muted floral patterns, right. <laughs> Yeah, like this movie flamboyant, but like not gaudy. But this movie has of... like the look of a lifetime original movie in a lot of ways, especially yeah. like the production design. It's very beige. Yeah. <laughs> so I feel like this movie is my mom's color palette. Which love you, mom. But my mom <laughs> has like three colors that she always goes to whenever she's decorating or choosing pillows or paint colors or anything, <laughs> and it's like shades of beige, then like a medium blue, and then a burgundy. Lovely. Yeah. And then, I mean, those are nice colors, but it, that's like their her whole uh, house. You know, you get a motif. Actually, she's favorite. been thrown in green, like a, a foresty green. It's oh. looking real nice. Yeah. Real environmental. Yeah, but that's like the whole movie. The whole movie is uh, floral of that color palette. Mm -hmm. Okay, now here are some people that are not 
floral color palette. Because, like I said, they're just <laughs> yeah. a deep roster of people. Good segue. Joe Joe Flaherty. <laughs> Joe Flaherty. As, cousin as, Ray. as the cousin who's just a dick yeah. to the family who, like, steals a funeral <laughs> plot. He's in the movie for, like, two minutes. And he's just so memorable as just, like, an asshole. Yeah. yeah. I know <laughs> him from Freaks and Geeks. He's the dad. He's, and from Billy Madison as, you suck, you jackass. Yeah. Happy Gilmore. But, yeah. Happy Gilmore. Fuck, yeah. Like, he's one of the original SCTV people. Like, that's yeah, clear. Yeah. That's clear. Like, a Harold Ramis, like, a Flay, Flaherty, what's up, boy? Why don't you come on down? Why wasn't Eugene Levy in this movie, Great though? Great question. <laughs> Probably would have helped write it. Sorry, Al. Um, but, so we should talk about some of the other people in this. Uh, Harris Eulin, I think. I don't know how to pronounce Oh, yeah, it. Harris Eulin is the he's dad. He's a dad. He's great, like, as always. If you ever saw Ghostbusters 2, he's the judge who just tells everyone, he's, like, barking the whole time. He's, he's a... Also in Scarface, he was in Training Day, and I know him because he was the Chancellor in Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And I always remember him from Harold Ramis's deeply shitty movie, Multiplicity, in which he plays <laughs> yeah. the scientist that invents the multiplicity thing. Oh my god, he was in Candy Mountain. Yeah. Uh, I just saw, he's in, uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, Robert Frank and Rudy Wurlitzer directed a movie called Candy Mountain, and he's apparently in it. I just saw it. I don't fucking remember him at all, but that was not a movie that was easy to remember. Yeah. Well, and the mom, so the mom's uh, Shirley Knight, she, I know her because she was in Grandma's Boy. Uh, She's one of the grandmas, and she gets, like, real baked with Shirley Jones in yeah. the movie. I think she's the one, she's not the one who hooks up with the younger guy. I would like to read what I wrote about my notes from the first time I watched this movie, which is uh, a week ago or so, which is, Shirley Knight, <clears throat> a well-regarded, well-renowned actress who I can literally say I do not know. <laughs> See, that is what I, wrote. <laughs> I thought she was awesome as the mom. She, she nails is, it. I was saying this during the movie. Yeah. There is a scene, and I should say I'm stealing this from somebody who wrote this as some review on the, on the internet somewhere, so it's not my original idea, but someone had said um, some of this movie is very much like an Alexander Payne movie. We talked about how it's kind of like uh, Nebraska or The Descendants where like someone comes... You know, like like in Nebraska, where Bob Odenkirk comes, or is it Will Forte comes back from? It's Will Forte. Yeah, yeah. Com comes back uh, to his hometown and deals with all these family issues. Like Shirley Knight is like straight out of that movie. She yeah. is yeah. like it, it is the same type yeah. of performance. June Squibb took some yeah, notes. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The whole movie kind of plays out like an Alexander Payne movie. It's just basically family melodrama in stitched in between this like weird public access. Yeah. Show problem. Well, and then we already kind of talked about Laura uh, San Giacomo. Mm -hmm. uh, she, yeah, she was in Pretty Woman too. Okay. And she was on Just Shoot Me. Yeah, she's she's been in a few things. I found out from trivia that she was initially cast to play Frida in Frida. Oh man! And there was so much outrage because she's not Mexican. That they were like, well, sorry, can't do it. We gotta cast a Mexican. And oh, that's man. how Selma Hayek got it. Her eyebrow. She has, like, the eyebrow for it. Yeah. That's, like... <laughs> also, uh, her mentor and surrogate father is George Seagal. Weird. Okay. Isn't that weird? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah, also, uh, Vinny D, I found out from his trivia, he's played Orson Welles twice. <laughs> Once in Ed Wood. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so some of the, like, one-off character actors that are in this for, like, just a hot second. So at that funeral where Joe Flaherty sort of pisses everybody off, and what ends up happening is D'Onofrio and uh, Harris Eulin 
they like beat up the cops. There's a yeah. cop at the funeral who's uh, played by Mike Haggerty, who, as I would know from Wayne's World, he's the guy who sits with Ed O'Neill and says, "I got fired today." He holds up his pink slip, and then Ed O'Neill talks about basically, "Oh, okay, well, well, what if you murdered a man? You got to hold this apart." <laughs> well, I, I just got fired, and I'm just hoping they'll, they'll hire me back. That guy is a cop in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> I recognize him. <laughs> there are uh, some other people. There's uh, the lawyer. So what? Like we said, at some point, uh, Stewart gets a subpoena to come back uh, to Minnesota to basically commit perjury in court to on behalf to, of his family to talk yeah. about this to sort out this whole Eastman issue. The lawyer is Kurt Fuller, another guy from Wayne's World. He's the guy who plays Russell, who's the uh, stooge of Rob Lowe's character, but he's also in Ghostbusters too as the uh, asshole uh, stooge of the mayor. Uh, sort of giving it to the yeah, he's in so much he's, stuff. In, he's in a ton of things yeah. yeah well and then the the lawyer for the uh, prosecution was Dave Dave Peskesi uh, of TJ and Dave uh, Chicago uh, Chicagoans would know TJ and Dave uh, from their weekly showcase at Improv Olympics? Is that where they do I'm it? pretty sure it's at I.O., yeah. I.O., yeah. But it's uh, they are these legendary improv comedians, and because part of this is set in Chicago, and Harold Ramis is directing, uh, Dave shows up. I believe both of them are in Ice Harvest also. Oh, weird. Yeah. But you'd know if you didn't know that uh, more... Sorry, guys. Ma- more mainstream reference would be he is uh, uh, Selena Meyer's husband in uh, the HBO show Veep. There you go. So, but in that courtroom, then there's the judge, who's played by Richard Reel or Riley. Riley, yeah, that's the jump to conclusions map guy from Office Space. If we can tie back to the previous mm-hmm. movie, then I'm talking about extracts. Yep. And he will be in a future. Uh, he, he'll come up in a future Secret Cinema episode when we cover palindromes. So this is at least the third time I've hinted at that episode Jeez. coming. <laughs> and then uh, another character is Julia Sweeney, another SNL alum who uh, also had an SNL movie called It's Pat, which probably did worse than Stewart. Yeah, oh, definitely. Yeah, yeah. definitely but Julia worse. Sweeney plays a very nervous... Uh, Her name's Mia. She's the secretary of Roz at one point, and then basically uh, Stuart brings her in as a guest on his show, and they sort of talk about her mother, her issues with her mother. Yeah. yeah. Oh, and uh, uh, the other, the one cameo I wanted to point out is that Ted Raimi, Sam Raimi's brother, uh, and frequent uh, extra in the Evil Dead movies, appears... Briefly in a scene uh, with Julia for no reason. It's just like a boardroom scene. What? And, and what? Weird. Yeah, and it's just like nobody else in the boardroom was anyone I recognized. And But Ted Raimi really stuck out. And this is 95, so this is after Army of Darkness. He's he's definitely like... Inst- I, I just... I don't know. Maybe it's just like they were like... They just didn't trust him as an actor. And so they're forcing him into bit parts and stuff. He's still doing bit parts. But it just... It's weird to see Ted Raimi in a non-Sam Raimi movie. And he had, like, one line, which was yeah. basically like, well, Julia, how are you going to pay for these things? What are the treasury <laughs> bonds? Like, and she's like, well, treasury bonds. It's a very weird scene. Yeah. Uh, okay, let's... Now let me go into some of the things that I had some stupid amount of research in. So, during this movie... Vincent D'Onofrio is drinking beer. Uh, he's drinking beer at a bar in which a couple people try to threaten oh my God. him and Al Franken into get, getting into a fight. Yeah. Uh, and also he's drinking this same beer when he gets shot by his dad yeah. in the hunting scene. This is a Beaver Creek beer. Now, I couldn't find what this was parodying because it's a Minnesota... I figure it's a Minnesota beer. Uh, Beaver Creek beer is not a real beer as far as I can tell. But it did remind me of a famous like uh, prop beer. I think it's called... Heisler beer. I don't know if you guys have ever seen it. No. It's in like 25 different TV shows. It's in like Workaholics. It's in um, Happy Endings. It, it's in... Weird. Uh, I think, it, I think uh, when it's when they're not using Coors Light, I think they it's in Always Sunny. It's like 
a famous prop beer. I don't know. I just huh. wondered if Beaver Creek was anything like that. And then there was another thing that I did a, a stupid amount of research. So one of the flashbacks that, that we were talking about is um, Stewart's character uh, when he was a child. Are you talking about the Ajax? I'm talking about the Ajax. Yeah. <laughs> so... Uh, how do I describe this? Ajax is a cleaning product back in the '60s. It's like Comet. Yeah, there's a there was a real uh, there was a real life advertising slogan or campaign where they tried to get uh, basically an armed knight white riding a white horse, and they said in the movie they're like name the name this guy, and so he has this uh, Sir Clean a lot. Yeah, yeah, and then it ends up being Sir Lancelot. Lancelot. Yeah, and apparently in real life it, that that was a thing. I don't know if it was Sir Lancelot. I think they said it was Sir Galahad. The inspiration for the White Knight campaign. At first, a figure of Sir Galahad was considered, but then it was ch- later a nameless White Knight was chosen, and then they had a name the White Knight contest, but it was a dismal failure. <laughs> oh, jeez! <laughs> apparently, the commercial. Well, yeah, because they gave away a car full of cash. Right. <laughs> that was the prize. <laughs> uh, so some of the the, uh, the they, I don't know. Gosh, this is. Not working out as well as I thought. <laughs> Basically, uh, Ajax's whole thing. This is a whole like, big ad for Ajax. You don't yeah. need to clean stuff. Is it's that Ajax. still around? <laughs> I think so. Sir, it sure looks like it. Comet's that, that still around. That re- oh yeah, that yeah. that is recognizable. I, I think hell, I think I use Ajax like soap. This is a real great ad for yeah. Ajax. <laughs> Ajax, get the podcast. Get up secret cinema. Yeah. <laughs> Stick and span. All right. Anyway, that's all I got. <laughs> So, um, I want to go to the Ebert and Siskel review that we were talking about, how they both gave this movie a thumbs up. Yeah, this is like, it's very famously, they were one of the only defenders of this movie, and it even comes up in the SNL sketch about the movie's failure. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, he holds up a newspaper and he's like, like, do you see? Two thumbs up? Oh wait, but you don't read. Yeah. You're illiterate. (laughs) But uh, I wrote down this quote from Ebert's review. He gave this movie three out of four stars, which is passing. Um, It's a thumbs up. Uh, But he said, Stuart Saves His Family is a genuine surprise. A movie as funny as the SNL skit, and yet, with convincing characters, a compelling story, and a sunny, sweet sincerity shining down on the humor. And I can't really argue with that. I don't really think the movie's that funny, but I do think it has convincing characters. I think that, well, the story might not be compelling, but it's not necessarily, like, a downer. The top review on Rotten Tomatoes is, it isn't good enough, it isn't smart enough, and doggone it, most people won't like <laughs> That's pretty right. good. Way to go, Jolie, yeah. for variety. That's pretty good. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. I think both Eber and Siskel, they probably just related to the emotional intelligence side. Yeah, I'm sure. that there's some side. I would just say that, like, just considering they had to watch every shitty movie, they had to watch that Steve Gutenberg movie where he lies about having cancer, they had to watch that Tony Danza movie where Tony Danza wants to fuck his daughter. They had to watch North. They had to watch North. So, watching a movie where it's, like, a bunch of idiots aren't just slapping each other and <laughs> doing shit like that, it's, like, people talking about their feelings, it, like, it was probably, like, Viking in it for Well, you have to understand, so... Yeah, they had to watch Gryffindor's Drive. Yeah. <laughs> in the episode of, of Siskel and Ebert, the movies they review are Basketball Diaries, which is a movie I've never seen, but that's uh, Leonardo DiCaprio. Yeah, it's pretty depressing. There's some other movie, and then there's Jury Duty... Which they both hated. That's yeah. the Holly Shore movie, which uh, did much better than Stuart Saves His Family. 
the plot is probably a little too long for me to read it out in uh, in Wikipedia, but suffice to say, Find Poly, it. it's a Polly Shore movie. Find it's it on about IMDb. as good as you think it is. Yeah. <laughs> Find that shit on IMDb. They'll sum it up in two sentences. <laughs> uh, by the way, just... Because uh, you were you were mentioning it, the jury duty. Oh God, it just I just had it. Oh, I just had it. It's okay. Oh. I have something prepared. Yes. So the last movie that Harold Ramis directed was Year One. Oh yeah, oh. really bad movie. Never saw that. Oh, yeah. it is not good. It makes me sad that that's his last movie. Yeah, but but also he directed four episodes of The Office. Oh yeah, really good episodes. Yeah, I didn't the... he do the Benny Hanna Christmas yes. episode? Yeah, he also did Beach Games. Oh yeah, God, and he did really good ones. He did safety training. That's isn't that the one with the CPR dummies? No, that's stress relief. Oh, but yeah. okay. <laughs> still, either way, he did. He really did great episodes. I also I wanted to point this out. I didn't really get a chance to bring this up during the cameo section, but uh, fans of the Secret Cinema will recognize editor Pembroke Herring as the editor on this. What? Why uh, would anyone recognize that? Just because that? we talked about this in the Clifford episode about we couldn't figure out what gender the name Pembroke was supposed <laughs> to be. But uh, presumably it's a man. Uh, Pembroke edited this with his son, uh, or I have to guess, Craig. Or, or Craig, daughter. Craig Herring. No, I doubt Craig is a daughter. Okay, sorry. But with her son. Her son, his son, Craig. The point is, two of the herrings edited this movie together. Pembroke is back. Pembroke will edit every 90s movie we cover, it seems like. I just wanted to bring up Pembroke Herring. How often does people, do people get shout-outs to this guy? It's gotta be never. Uh, is also, he still alive? Uh, I don't know. Or I don't, I don't look him up. Her. her up. I don't. It's an... Yeah, it's, it's, it's just the name. It's all about the name. Uh, and that is... Okay, so to give some extra info about Al Franken, like I said, he he started the whole Stewart character because of his wife, you know, and he, they've been married for forty two years. Francie, like Franny, Franny, Franny Bryson, yeah, which is so close to Fanny uh, Bryce, which is the character from Funny Girl. It's so close. People, people, people. No, no, no. Nope. You guys not into it. Well, nope. I will tell you the safety training episode that you were talking about. That's the one where uh, basically Michael's not allowed to use the lift anymore. <laughs> yeah, and <so> <laughs> <laughs> it, it, that's the one where it ends up where they throw watermelons off. The roof. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> god, that is a really great episode. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't it like Dwight's gonna jump? Dwight, you ignorant slut! No, Michael's gonna jump. <laughs> Alright, uh, do you guys have anything else you want to talk about? Not that's actually relevant to the movie Stuart's yeah. family. I have lots of thoughts about Polly Shore, though. Yeah, so. well, that's, that's no good. Gary, do you have anything else you want to bring up? No. Alright. I don't think so. I mean, I have other things about Al Franken, but we already... Yeah, we got the key stuff. Yeah. Well, now we got to talk about our teachable moments. What are we going to teach about Stuart Sanders? I don't know, Paula. What are we going to teach? And, I'm and on probation. No, you were on probation last week, and you clearly don't have a moment prepared right now. Well, then let's hear it. My teachable uh, moment is the danger of genre labeling. Because, I, like you were saying about, uh, you know, you tell someone they're going to a horror movie, and then they end up watching Twilight. Well, technically, you're not wrong, because Twilight is about vampires, and vampires are in the horror genre. But 
when you go into when you watch a trailer that is like specifically cut for the genre that the movie is supposed to be or you go into a movie with like the preconceived notion like I know Paolo's told me that he and this is fair because this movie does suck but <laughs> he hated Lady in the Water because he thought it was going to be like a horror M Night movie and instead it was like a fictional story I tell my kids before they go to bed uh movie and I actually went into Lady in the Water when I was young, the fir you know, the first time I saw it, thinking, oh, it's a fictional story that he tells his kids. And so I kind of liked it when I first saw it. So I just think, like, you know, when you watch a movie, if you have the genre in mind or you go in with preconceived notions, it really does inform the way you perceive the movie. It really can destroy or enhance your experience. So just make sure you're keeping an open mind when you're uh, watching something you think you know a lot about. Yeah, that's definitely something I try to apply personally. Like, like if there's a movie that I want to see, I'll see like the teaser trailer and be like, that will determine whether or not I want to see the movie. But if it's like, oh damn, I want to see that, or oh, I didn't know they were coming out with another movie or that, like that, I'm like, cool. Put that in, put a pin in that, gonna try to avoid every single thing I can think about it. Yep, yeah, yeah same. Good example right now, this might be dating this episode, so I hope it's not terrible. No, whatever. whatever. There's a movie that's, that just came out called Get Out. Yes, yes. Yeah, I've seen it yet. We movie. haven't seen it either. I haven't seen it yeah. at all. Ugh. I've had like four different podcasts that are like, oh, we have an interview with Jordan Peele. I'm like, guess what? I'm not listening to for another month yeah. <laughs> like, until I get around to seeing it. So, yeah, I totally, yeah. totally... People at work it. have been trying to talk to me about it, and I'm like, shut up! Like, shut up, shut up! I have enough from the fringes of, like, what it, I... Like, I don't care. I'm going to go into it, so when I see it, I can make my own judgment on the merits of it, uh, whatever I interpret it is. Because oh, yeah. that's the biggest problem with this movie, is that, like, it's an s &M, Like, you watch the trailer, you're like, Stuart, it's this guy, and then he's got this dysfunctional family. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> my dad grew up in the Depression. His mother was... Oh. Related to that, which is uh, as a screenwriter, you have to have realistic expectations for what your audience will put up with or what they'll be interested in because this is this is very very common. Uh, I took screenwriting classes in college. This is one of those things they have to pretty much walk every screenwriter through is the the temptation to indulge yourself or to just write something because you they tell you write what you know and you write what you know uh it's very easy to get wrapped up in a story and then not actually have written it for anyone other than yourself or your core interests and your frame of reference and like we said nothing about the way he wrote this nothing about the way al franken wrote this suggests that he doesn't know how to structure a movie all the information is clear it's all logical the characters are interesting and well developed he just fundamentally did not know how to make the information exciting captivating funny in a way that would earn the label of a comedy it seems just called a comedy just because of just inertia more than anything and there's a lot of stuff i feel like there's we, we said there's a lot of little easy fixes that could have been made that really would have made this movie work a lot better and i don't think it's a bad movie but i 
do think it's like a very interesting midway point between two extremes. And because of that, it's not fully successful. Yeah. Yeah. I think you uh, nailed it. All right, Will. You know, I was going to say something about, like, you got to be careful about how you frame a movie. Take it. Yeah. That's the fine. Other, the other thing I was going to say was, was, like, you know, just because you're, like, a, a smart, great person doesn't mean <laughs> that you just really, like, be careful with the way you write a movie. And then, okay. So I guess the thing I'm going to have to say is, like, Al Franken, maybe uh, stick to politics. <laughs> yeah, I'm cool with that suggestion. Yeah, do not quit your job as a senator to write another Stewart movie. Please don't. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you will. Alright, good. He's sitting, he's then we changed the world. He's no, hold up, hold up, hold up, though. If, like, he decided to, like, whip out Stuart Smalley to, like, talk about how, like, a disaster the uh, American Healthcare Act or, or whatever the, this disaster thing that Trump is putting out. If it's Stuart Smalley and Trump in the same room, Donald Trump is an overweight, <laughs> hairless vagina, 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 vagina. Or he's looking in the mirror and he's like, Trump. I know that you're having a tough time, and that's okay. You know, or just like you know, patronizing him. I just would like, daily to see, would like to see Stuart Smalley like amends. A M E N D S amends. Now, can you say that with me, Donald? That's yeah, what, yeah. Uh, they still haven't figured out who's doing the correspondence dinner, right? Maybe they can get Stuart Smalley Isn't to do Sam it. Sam B doing it, but it's just like across the street and no, I, like. I, Trump's hers is, hers is unofficial. Yeah. Yeah, well, it's going to be awesome, so. Yeah, it'll be I'm awesome. not saying it's not going to yeah. be awesome. Fuck Donald Trump. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yep. Oh, by the way, Al <laughs> uh, Franken is definitely staying busy. He sits on four committees. Baller. Oh, yeah. We've seen him a lot in the news lately, thankfully, uh, interrogating. He gave a lot of shit lot to of Betsy DeVos, which was yeah. nice. It was nice. But that is a different podcast. Uh, listen yes. to The Secret Politic uh, coming up next. Uh, for now, this has been The Secret Cinema. I'm Paolo. I'm Carrie. I'm Will. Thanks for coming again, Will. Yeah, thanks, Will. Thanks. Woo! And thanks for listening, everybody. Bye. See ya. The Secret Cinema is produced and edited by Paolo Carone. All theme songs and original music are written and performed by Ricardo Ortiz. Any additional music or samples are taken from the film featured on this week's episode. All logos and artwork are created by Carrie Chafee. You can follow Carrie on Instagram at CarrieSawThis and see more of her artwork at www.CarrieChafee.com. You can watch Paolo's short films at www.vimeo.com slash or read more of his ramblings about film at www.letterbox.com slash Follow The Secret Cinema on Instagram at Secret Cinema Podcast, on Twitter at Covert Celluloid, or like us on Facebook. The Secret Cinema is a commentary and criticism podcast, and its use of film dialogue and film music for illustrative purposes falls under the fair use provisions of U.S. copyright law. The Secret Cinema is a product of Larry Lavey Productions. All rights reserved. Thanks for listening.